You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by the Complete Concussion Management Clinical Network. Are you suffering from a concussion? Concussion symptoms that just aren't getting better? Maybe you're in the wrong place. Maybe you're seeing the wrong healthcare professional. Visit completeconcussions.com slash find dash a dash clinic to find all of the local professionally trained concussion clinicians in your area. Each of our partnered clinics have gone through extensive training on concussion assessment, diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation, and will be able to quickly determine the root cause of your symptoms and work with you to develop a plan to get rid of them. If you don't know what's driving your symptoms, you can't ever hope to relieve them. Completeconcussions.com slash find a clinic. They have a 98% patient satisfaction rating and the net promoter score as judged by real patients is higher than Amazon, Netflix, and Apple. Completeconcussions.com slash find dash a dash clinic. You won't regret it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ask Concussion Doc, episode number 74. We're in a new venue because we have a special guest, Dr. Paul Herkel. Everyone who's watching, welcome to my home. We're sitting at my kitchen table right now. Uh, the light was better and the space was better for this particular venue. It looks good, Cam. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Uh, Dr. Paul Herkel, for those who do not know, is a naturopathic doctor with a passion to apply innovative and evidence-based nutritional, biological, and supplemental interventions to address underlying metabolic, endocrine, and immunological dysfunctions. Dr. Herkel has a special interest in neurological health, chronic pain, and brain injuries. He is a strong advocate for the integrative of integrative medical education, frequently writing and lecturing to both healthcare practitioners and public audiences. Dr. Herkel lectures extensively on the topic of integrative and natural approaches to concussions and neurotrauma recovery. He is a member of, of the scientific advisor. I can't tell. Scientific Advisory uh, Board of Complete Concussion Management, which is the best concussion management company around. Uh, an international leader in research-based concussion management education and certification. He is currently the Medical Director for Advanced Orthomolecular Research, AOR, an innovative and leading Canadian natural health product company and maintains a clinical practice in the Toronto area at two integrative clinics. And we frequently work together we do, yeah. with patients. Um, Today, actually, my patients watching are probably like, hey, <laughs> my health team sitting right there. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the topic of neuroinflammation, uh, which is a very interesting topic and one that is obviously very pertinent in the mm -hmm. concussion space. So, Dr. Herkel, first question. What yep. is neuroinflammation and how is this different from just systemic inflammation or regular inflammation? Yeah, so... When we were kind of talking about discussing this topic, you know, one of the things that we felt was very valuable was to identify the differences between what somebody might experience if they bump their knee, osteoarthritis, you know, and the type of inflammation that happens after a brain injury. There are a couple of key differences. Number one, it's important to realize that the central nervous system, the brain, the spine, is kind of walled off from the rest of the body. We have this thing called the blood-brain barrier, which keeps 
there are specific immune cells, there are specific nerve cells that are happening in the brain, that are present in the brain, that the peripheral nervous system, peripheral immune system, that they don't really like to interact. And if they do, it's a pathological process, like we'll talk about here in TBI. So basically, the first difference is, is that there's different cells involved. So there's a couple key ones that we should point out in neuroinflammation. Number one, there's these cells called the microglia or glia cells. And they are kind of like the police people of the <laughs> of the brain. They normally they if, if all things are good, they are just relaxing, chilling, keeping the balance, keeping the peace in scientific terms, maintaining homeostasis. And as soon as an injury, an infection, any sort of insult or stress occurs, these guys get turned on. And their job is basically to create the alarm to say, hey, you know what? We need help here. So after a brain injury, microglia become activated and they start spitting out these inflammatory markers. So that's one cell. We'll circle back to those in a sec. Um, we're also going to, uh, we also have to realize there's something called the astrocytes. These are the guys that keep the barriers intact. So blood-brain barrier, these little astrocytes have feet that keep those, the basically the the particular, um, the particular permeability of that blood-brain barrier intact. Uh, and then there's things like oligodendrocytes, which basically create something called myelin, which is really unique to the nervous system. It basically is the coding to the nerves. So kind of like a wire, um, you know, we're setting up, I was putting up Christmas lights yesterday <laughs> and I was at the store. Yeah, I see them back here too. Uh, and they were looking at, uh, you know, the gauge of the wire, how big the wire was, what kind of coating it had on it. So the way that the conduction, the electricity flows faster, the myelin allows that to flow faster. So those are kind of like the, the more specialized cells of the nervous system. And they're involved in inflammation a little bit differently where there's just kind of your, your regular immune cells in your body like um, monocytes, macrophages, neutrophils. Um, and they, they create inflammation on the peripheral level. But is it just the difference in cells or is the process itself yeah. different as well? So it's not just the cells, it's the processes that are different too. What's unique about the brain inflammation is this, is that these guards, these microglia, they're really easy to turn on and they're hard to turn off. And after a brain injury, usually around day three to day seven, microglia start to peak. That's where they're really activated. However, there are things happening minutes and hours right after a brain injury. So for example, the, the first thing that we're going to experience on an inflammatory level after a brain injury is that you're going to have these neural signaling molecules called DAMPs or danger associated molecular patterns. And they are just basically the first alarm system to say, hey, we have damage occurring. Anytime a cellular membrane is broken, these DAMPs are secreted. There's also special ones for if you have an infection of the brain. They're called PAMPs. They're different. But that happens immediately. And then interestingly enough, and this is where we're going to come back to the, the, the gut-brain connection, the first cell that's activated is not the microglia. It's actually peripheral nerve, uh, immune cells called neutrophils. They're recruited mm. within the first 24 hours to the area to say, hey, we need to clean up this damage because after a brain injury, you have damage. You have mm -hmm. cellular mm -hmm. damage. You basically have garbage that's being mm -hmm. spewed out of the cell. And the brain is really smart. The body's smart. It needs to clean up and resolve this inflammation. And mm -hmm. we're going to talk about resolution a bit more because I know we talked about that a couple days ago. But that's the initiation of, of, of inflammation. And it's a combination between 
what's happening in the brain and also peripheral nervous, uh, peripheral immune cells like the neutrophils are being recruited mm -hmm. to say, hey, we got to clean this area up. And then hopefully within seven days, they start to resolve and go back down to normal levels. So how, like just, just talking about mechanism and that activation from the neutrophils based on completely separate immune systems, blood brain barrier, yep. what's, what's the mechanism if you know, like, do you understand, like, what's the mechanism that goes from um, injury that's in a walled off completely separate system that's now yeah, going to yeah. activate peripherally? And then how do the neutrophils then infiltrate? Can they cross blood brain or so let's maybe first yeah. talk about activation mechanism. It's a great question. Um, if, if, if that's something that we even know. Um, so if you went to a textbook, traditionally you'd look at, well, there's a really specific immune system in the brain and it's only for the brain. And then there's one in the body. But what we now know in the latest research, and I think concussions have really started to help us with this, is that there is, there is an interplay between these two systems and the blood brain barrier becomes more leaky. So it allows those signaling molecules I just talked about, mm -hmm. those damps, it mm -hmm. is the signal that says, hey, open these doors, we need extra help. So mm -hmm. bring in mm -hmm. the calorie, bring mm -hmm. in the, the fire trucks, bring in the garbage crew. Mm -hmm. We need to clean up this inflammation. We need to clean up this cellular debris, cellular damage. And funny enough, talking about the gut brain barrier, there is within the first three hours, not only does the blood brain barrier become permeable, the gut barrier becomes permeable. So that's the lining between your intestinal contents, your mm -hmm. microbiome, all the bacteria, probiotics, and the immune system. 70% of your immune system is literally sitting there, like the front lines, <laughs> right, right behind your intestinal lining. It's a one cell thick lining, but it becomes more permeable. Mm -hmm. And what the reason researchers think that's happening is to basically propagate that inflammatory and healing response. We think of inflammation as a negative thing. And, you know, it's easy to get caught into, oh, I have inflammation. I need to block inflammation. Mm -hmm. I need to stop mm -hmm. inflammation. Mm -hmm. That's a very like 20 year old thought process. It's now about how do I promote and resolve inflammation? I need a good, hearty inflammatory response. Why? Because it's trying to heal that mm -hmm. scar tissue. You've probably heard in the literature a glial scar after a brain injury, mm -hmm. after a more severe. That's an exact reason why we don't want just to have scarring. Mm -hmm. We want to have resolution of that inflammation. Mm -hmm. So that, that gut-brain connection is in, right away leveraged and employed. And that's how you're starting to get recruitment of these peripheral nervous immune cells. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you talk about like like the, the increased permeability of blood-brain barrier because that's one of the theories behind um, chronicity of symptoms in, in a mm -hmm. lot of cases is this increased permeability of blood-brain barrier and you get infiltration of systemic inflammatory stuff you know, getting into into the blood-brain right. barrier where they're not supposed to be, which then kind of creates a secondary immune response. Is that the activation of glial cells? Is glial cells a secondary activation in response to that? Or is it just a, a more delayed reaction? From my understanding of the research, is more of a delayed reaction. Okay. Um, it, it's hard to sometimes tease apart like step A to step B to step yeah, C. It kind of does all right? of it. Yeah. Because there is an initial kind of almost like a, a, a an alarm bell that goes out and it starts activating multiple things. And some cells rec are recruited faster. For example, neutrophils, even in your body, if you cut yourself right here, neutrophils will be the first ones on site. They're just the fastest ones. Let's do it. Don't worry. <laughs> Let's <laughs> test it. Uh, but that's just simply the way that these guys work. And then you, by the time, so the neutrophils are like the first responders, you know, like the fire, ambulance, fire assist truck. 
After that, that's when you get like the macrophages moving in. They're like the slow moving garbage trucks. They kind of get in and they're the ones that like gobble up all the cellular debris. If there's an infection, they'll gobble that up. Um, but they take a couple days to be recru recruited. So I think it's to do really with, um, that's just the way that the, the system has been designed, the inflammatory system. That's the way that the system works rather than, you know, you peripherally do something. Um, one thing I will say is that the mast cells have a direct role of regulating microglia. So you mentioned, are the microglia activated uh, in a certain way or is there is there a certain pattern? It really comes down to the mast cells, which are kind of like, they're, they're kind of like the thermostat. They're the regulators in the brain where they're always testing and seeing what's going on. We think of mast cells in cases of allergies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's kind of what they're doing is they're actually sensing Am I being exposed to some sort of, am I not histamine, but any sort of antigen, some kind of trigger to mm. stimulate, you know, my runny nose. But mm. it happens in the brain too. That injury is like, all right, I'm sensing there's damage here. I'm going to start triggering my cascade. And that's where the microglia are really activated. So you mentioned that, you know, inflammation is normally regarded in most um, medical circles and most patient populations being something you want to avoid and block, right? We have a lot of anti-inflammatory medications. Exactly. A yeah. lot of the, even the dietary recommend, uh, like we're talking anti-inflammatory diet or low inflammatory yeah. diet. If inflammation is a natural process, why do we want to control it, suppress it, whatever? You're saying you not you don't want to suppress it, but you That's want right. to optimize it in some way. Yeah, I think the the simplest way to answer that is is that we live in a in a system where we kind of look at reductionist medicine medicine. So it's like, hey, I have inflammation, let's block it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that type of nomenclature and that type of thinking is kind of even spun down into I'm going to eat an anti-inflammatory diet. Like mm -hmm. we even talk about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The reason I talk about it that way is because it's easier for people to understand mm -hmm. that people know that. Hey, I got hit in the head. I have symptoms of inflammation. We talk about that. There's inflammation happening. It's something, it's important to consider that inflammation after a brain injury, especially in PCS, so post-concussion mm -hmm. syndrome, that is unresolving. So I mentioned microglia are easy to turn on, hard to turn off. Yeah. They are responsible for longer-term inflammatory processes in PCS. Mm. So you do want to regulate inflammation. Now, I'm starting to use that term a little bit more. When I use it with patients, it's still difficult for them to kind of wrap their head around resolving. And we do talk about re resolving, but homeostasis and modulation, like those are the words that are more accurate. Mm. Uh, so we just kind of defer to anti-inflammatory. Right. But more correct, like you said, would be resolution of inflammation. That's the most accurate way of thinking about it. And then when you look at actual actual inflammatory physiology there's an initiation phase mm -hmm. which is important we have to realize we need a good in, in, inflammatory response i actually and this is a personal theory that's kind of backed up by kind of me piecing together the evidence i think one of the reasons some people go on to pcs and some people don't is that they actually have a very poor initiation phase of inflammation really that they never actually will get to the point they can click into and, and flip over the other end of the mountain roll down the other hill of resolution and there's a lot of reasons why that may be the case but you can look at deficiencies in nutrients you can some of the basic atp dysfunction that people are experiencing um, lack of 
certain types of things like omega-3s, the, the health of your cellular membrane. Your cellular membrane is where all the inflammatory action happens. That's where omega-3s are part of the inflammatory cascade. That's where omega-6s are part of the inflammatory cascade. That's where arachidonic acid and all these kind of key precursors. Mm -hmm. So if your cellular membrane is crappy, if your cellular membrane is full of fats that are oxidized, rancid, damaged, you're going to have a poor inflammatory response. And that's going to mean a poor initiation and a poor resolution. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm trying to wrap my head around, I don't know if you've seen this, but is it just that awareness is happening more? But are we experiencing more people going into PCS? Or I think we are. I think, I don't know. Like, I, I mean, that's, that's the question that I think is, it has been plaguing the research is the increased amount of patients having PCS. Is that a direct reflection of more severe injuries, poor coping, or is that a direct reflection of increased awareness? And awareness, more, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that one, I don't, I don't think we really know. Um, but when it's interesting you say that because there was a recent study that looked at college football players and it found that like astronomically high amounts of them were um, were deficient in omega-3. That's right. Yeah. So they had – right? Yeah. So, so I wonder then if that is a reflection of like A, our you know, shitty North American diet you know, over the past however many years – when Probably their whole 20 years up to that life. Has right? been terrible, right? Like so we're eating bad. And then you're a university college athlete. You're probably not eating great either. You know, you're probably eating cafeteria food, fast food, bar food, you know, mm -hmm. you know, drinking like, you know. And so then injury happens. And then now maybe you don't have that resolution as well. I mean, you could probably argue that in years past, probably for the last 50 years. I mean, since I, I don't know when college football really became huge, but I'm guessing the last 50 years – diet has been pretty poor mm -hmm. up to now and why is it right now that we're experiencing that and and i i think it diet has a huge role to play but i think it it may be something else that we mm -hmm. may not know and i'm not saying we have all the answers we yeah. definitely don't but it's, it's something to consider uh I, I think one of the things that we talked about before this podcast when we were at a conference this weekend was mm -hmm. about people being able to or sorry, I was going to say the inflammatory switch from the initiation to the resolution is really the crux of that switch is on levels of stress hormones. And epinephrine, norepinephrine, once that gets below cortisol or equal to cortisol, so initially, I'll maybe back up here. Mm -hmm. If somebody gets a brain injury and he gets any injury, they usually get that kind of fight or flight reaction. So typically norepinephrine, adrenaline, those mm -hmm. types of neurotransmitters, they're elevated a little higher. And that's good because that's our kind of fight and flight, get us out of harm's way. Those can kind of last for the next week or two. Kind of you still feel like I feel a little shaky, right? Yeah, yeah, People yeah. will tell yeah, you yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Inflammation, that switch into from the initiation of the resolution is when those kind of initial fight and flight – neurotransmitters fall below your kind of secondary cortisol, which is your kind of anti-inflammatory molecule. You know, if you get an injection, you get a cortisone injection. Mm -hmm. Cortisol and cortisone are just one, one removed from each other. So it may be that I think our athletes now and people in general are just in a higher state of just latent stress. Mm. Mm. That's kind of my, I would say that's kind of my working theory that diet's the same. 
yeah, could it be toxicity and deficiencies building up? Yeah, we know that we have more chemicals in our, in our ecosystems now. Mm -hmm. We have more deficiencies because of environmental depletion, agricultural depletion. But I think it really has to do with stress. I mean, mm. rates of depression are the highest they've been. Rates of anxiety are quite high right now comparatively to 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and definitely our patients, just people are just not coping. Mm -hmm. How much of that, like even, and I had I had it in here as one of the things to ask you today was, was how does even like the dietary aspect or even like, you know, neuroinflammation, if you want to call it that gut brain axis, how much does that play into uh, mental health, anxiety, depression, or do you think it's vice versa where anxiety, stress, depression leads to, you know, this kind of heightened response? Do you know what I mean? Like chicken it, or the egg. Chicken or the egg. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like how, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on? Yeah. So I, I think a few points to kind of, before I dive into what my kind of clinical appreciation of it is, is that there are 80% of nerve fibers going from the gut back up to the brain. So majority of the communication is happening up, up wow. from the bottom up, not the top down. 80%. 80%. And so what are the things that are being communicated? Well, number one, direct inflammatory molecules are being produced in the gut that are now making their way up to the brain. Neurotransmitters. So the gut produces 90% of your serotonin. Mm -hmm. Serotonin is the major neurotransmitter targeted by all your antidepressant medications. Mm -hmm. So we are trying to keep serotonin in the synaptic cleft, in mm -hmm. the neuron, mm -hmm. between the neurons longer, where we are not looking at where is it being produced. Mm -hmm. Could be a gut issue. Right. Uh, so I would say that things like anxiety, depression, it's probably a little bit of column A and column B. It's thought processes, it's a mentality. It's we perceive every single stressor through our senses mm -hmm. and then basically the brain is deciding can i cope with it or can i cope with it mm -hmm. and if it can't then it you trigger into the stress response and then that can actually cause permeability in the gut and then that permeability increases inflammation and then we have good research coming out that depression is an inflammatory condition mm -hmm. there is the inflammatory theory of depression mm -hmm. and I, I would put all kind of mental health uh, conditions into that category. They just haven't been as studied as well as depression. Right. So I think it's it's a combination of, of both. And then you can also look at, you know, could a person's intestinal permeability that could have maybe been caused by a brain injury then led to depression because now all this inflammation is being produced and they are not able to resolve it? Totally. Right, right, right. right. So it depends on what the initiating stimulus was. Right. Now is all of that gut-brain axis, you mentioned that 80% going back <clears throat> 20% going out is all of that vagus nerve is that is that bi-directional or is it vagus nerve in something else out like right. how does it communicate back so for those of you that don't know the vagus nerve is the main connecting point between the central nervous system your brain and your basically your whole abdomen and thoracic cavity so all your organs your gut is the one of the major organs there in your abdomen it's the main connection point between <clears throat> the basically the communication coming down from the brain. However, it also has communication to the rest of the body and to the brain as well. But that other communication I'm talking about with that 80%, those are things that are also independent of the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve has an ability to have an anti-inflammatory effect. And this is something I lectured a, a lot about last year in the naturopathic circles. But 
what researchers found is that when you are in a constant sympathetic overdrive, and that would be probably the, the biggest takeaway that I see with all my brain injury patients, and you probably can attest to this, mm -hmm. they are in a state of over being over stimulated over anxious they can't sleep all the symptoms that you'd experience if you're in that kind of fight and flight mode mm -hmm. but they have it on like an everyday low grade yeah i'm always just i'm never rested i can never get into like and then the symptoms of that are like anxiety there's i can't sleep my mind is racing and ultimately you can't recover because sympathetic nervous system cannot be activated at the same time as parasympathetic Parasympathetic is your vagus nerve. Mm. So if you are constantly in sympathetic mode, you are down-regulating, shutting off the vagus nerve. Just the way that the, the, the central nervous system is set up, when the autonomic nervous system, one branch is sympathetic, the next branch is parasympathetic, it comes out of the brain at the locus ceruleus. You can't have both turned on at the same time. Mm -hmm. So if you're always, if the body's like, I'm in like fight or flight mode, I'm in survival mode, it's just going to prioritize sympathetic. Right. And it's going to basically shut down all this. And what does that shut down? All the secretions of your enzymes, your hydrochloric acid in your stomach. So that means you're not breaking down food. You're not able to absorb any nutrients. You're now getting undigested food particles lower in the intestines. Your gut bacteria starts fermenting those, producing uh, molecules, chemicals that cause bloating. They can be systemically absorbed that have a systemic peripheral effect. Food sensitivities increase. A lot of the food sensitivities that I see in my patients there are what I call primary food sensitivities and secondary, meaning probably ones that you genuinely have a food sensitivity to. And then there are ones that are just your gut's leaky and your immune system seeing all these things. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that when I look at a food sensitivity test that you can test for in your blood, everything is red. Yeah. And we talked about that, right? We looked at that with yours. You yeah. know? But that was like, okay, we know that you can't eat things like eggs. Mm -hmm. But all these other foods, I think, are just like bystanders. But even the egg thing, the egg thing for me didn't come on until I was in first year chiropractic college. I eat eggs my whole my whole life. And so even then, yeah. that may have been a stress response too, right? Could to being been. in like just I overloaded school, with medical school is super stressful. It's crazy, sure. right? Like it's yeah. crazy. So um, that's like that's super, super interesting because what I notice, especially with a lot of my patients, is yes, they are in like fight or flight. If you're to do like resting heart rates and stuff like that, like their morning resting heart rate is off the charts. When even when I sit them down to do their treadmill test, they're already their heart rate is above what you'd expect. And they might just be nervous about the test, but I notice that they're in that sympathetic uh, kind of fight or flight all the time. And then what I also notice is one of the symptoms they always describe, not always, but very frequently describe, is that they have like their stomach is upset. They have low this. grade nausea. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes, yes. And probably half the people listening to this right now are going, that's, <laughs> that's me. me. Yeah. Right. That's me. And, um, it's, I, so I, so I've been referring a ton of patients to you just because of that, because it's like, okay, there's something going on here, chicken or the egg. I'm not really sure. And so I'm trying to do what I can to try and, um, educate, you know, give them different tricks and tools they can use to calm that down, you know, um, in terms of thought process and mm -hmm. like mindfulness and things like that to try and help that process. But also, you know, what's going on at that gut level that we can maybe, maybe yeah, we can make, so it's, fact. it's very, uh, it's very interesting. There's so, a lot of great tools that we have, like, you know, mindfulness, something as simple as deep breathing. So for example, you see your patients all the time. Uh, I'll, I'll set them down and it, part of my physical exam is, I'll just watch them breathe <laughs> and I'm doing it without actually telling them, but mm -hmm. I'll notice that they're breathing shallow, like shallow and yeah. up top. So we, our lungs are like a mountain, right? Yeah. So the top, the apex of our lungs, which are up here, when we breathe shallow, we're just using a very small fraction of our, of our oxygen capacity. There's a problem on a number of levels. Number one, 
every single cell in our body, every ATP molecule needs oxygen to be properly produced, mm -hmm. at least when you're doing aerobic respiration. So after a brain injury, we know that there is a decrease in energy production. Mitochondria are the key little parts of our cells that do that. And if you don't have enough oxygen, now that you're even breathing shallower, you're just not oxygenating your tissue. So when we're sitting here, you and I, we're using aerobic, AKA with oxygen respiration. Mm -hmm. And if people are not getting enough oxygen on a day-to-day -day state, they are not missing out on that extra therapeutic benefit of, of promoting energy production. Mm -hmm. So I just say, how are you breathing? And they'll say, well, typically I'll kind of breathe through my chest yeah, yeah, yeah. or I just watch them. And then we need to retrain ourselves to use our biggest breathing muscle, our diaphragm. I'm doing it right now. To actually breathe. And the simplest thing to do, and even I can you know sit here and do this, is you, you first of all, you have to sit up straight. A lot of people are hunched over and they're compressing their diaphragm. And then you start observing your own breath. And if you notice that your chest is moving more than your stomach, you're not using your diaphragm enough. Mm -hmm. So ideally, your chest is actually totally still and your stomach... Am I doing it? ...is moving out. Well, let's take a look. Yeah, so like your stomach is moving and this is not moving. And that's a good sign. Now you're using the big part of your lungs, which are down at the bottom part. Why is this important? Because your vagus nerve, your main parasympathetic nerve that switches us out of that fight and flight, most of its nerve endings are buried in the diaphragm. Really? Yeah, the number one most common place that nervous, that vagus nerve fibers are in muscular tissue. Mm -hmm. So like in the smooth muscle around your intestines, that's why the first thing people will do is when they get nervous, their stomach goes in knots. Yeah. That's because your vagus nerve is being shut down. Wow. And if you go up on stage, yep. you know, you and I do a lot of public speaking. Yep. The first thing that we do subconsciously is yep. <laughs> taking breath. That is literally doing therapy medicine for yeah. ourselves. Yeah. We are activating. Yeah. I get nervous every time. It's normal. I jump, I jump like every time I'm like, I'm like, okay, let's go. Going live. Uh, yeah. People think it's <laughs> he was just good like, today. Don't worry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so that it's interesting you say that with based on the oxygen on, on the oxygen thing because even one of the mechanisms just from from more from my world is is this reduction in brain blood flow yes right so we have this reduction in um, mitochondria production of, of ATP and one of the things we need is we need increased blood flow because we're not getting the same level of production mm -hmm. and what happens in concussions you get this this shutdown or this kind of deregulation of brain blood flow one of the mechanisms is um, through what's called cerebral autoregulation, and that's in relation to systemic blood pressure, but also in relation to the partial pressures of CO2. Mm -hmm. Because people's breathing rates change after concussion, mm -hmm. which then creates an increase in the CO2 levels in the, in, in the blood. Now, normally we'd be able to accommodate that. Right, increased levels of CO2 in the blood is your brain just dilates and you get more oxygen yeah. up, but we can't accommodate that, and so now you start to become, you know, more symptomatic with that. And so one of the things that they give to people now for this is they do this like neurofeedback thing or biofeedback where they're actually looking at your breathing rates, mm -hmm. and the best breathing rate they found is to be between four and a half breaths and six and a half breaths per minute, and just slowing down the breathing rate. And I think just by slowing down your breathing rate, you naturally have to use your entire lung field because you couldn't do that up here because yep. you'd probably pass out. You're not getting enough oxygen. But it's interesting how all of this really, really ties in, right? So if you get hit and you have this change in your breathing rate, which is going to impair your oxygen flow, which is then going to create more fight or flight, which is then going to break down like, you know, vagus nerve yeah. function, which is then going to stop your gut, you know, movement and all that stuff. It's like, it's all connected. Just boom, 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 cyclical, right? So it's like, 
always you have to look at this from such a global perspective. Yeah. And you can't just go, well, I'm doing this and that's it. That's My it. doctor referred me for a vestibular PT and that's what I'm going to do. It's like, no, no, no. you got to take a full look at this. And you got to start really working on everything together because doing yeah. this unified one thing at a time approach, I don't think is going to be effective. It doesn't make sense with physiology. We just talked literally in the last 15 minutes about how almost every system in the body is being affected. Mm -hmm. Immune, mm -hmm. nervous, mm -hmm. gut, mm -hmm. cardiovascular, mm -hmm. all those things have to be addressed as part of the treatment plan. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're not going to be getting the most out of any one of the particular treatments. Mm -hmm. And I say that all the time. My care addresses something that typically is overlooked, but it's a piece of the pie. It's mm -hmm. not the only piece. I send so many people to people with neuro, um, like so, uh, like a, a neuro optometrist. Yeah. So somebody that's going to address their uh, visual system, cervical system. Mm -hmm. I'm sending people over to people like yourself uh, so often because that is not something that what I'm doing is addressing. Mm -hmm. However, we need to do both mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, you mentioned something when you were talking that came up that I found uh, interesting, which I know you always talk a lot about how the new standards for go and, 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 and sit in a dark room is just totally non-science space. Gone, it's gone. Yeah. Well, think about when you go, when you're told to go in a dark room and do nothing, do you think you're breathing better or worse? Go and do some exercise. What is one of the things that it does? It increases breathing. Mm -hmm. It increases mm -hmm. oxygenation. Mm -hmm. That's one of the theories mm -hmm. of regulating blood, blood flow blood pressure and yeah. all that stuff like it changes those physiologic methods yeah. and it actually regulates heart rate so your sympathetic parasympathetic nervous system is all based on heart rate variability one thing that regulates that is breathing rate but also exercise that's the best thing you can do right and so um i still have so many patients that are so afraid to do anything because they're worried it's going to aggravate their symptoms and it might, it might in the short term yeah. but in the long term what you're doing is you're actually working on your on your physiology which is what you really what you really need to do um we still got some time here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna get in. I'm gonna switch gears a little bit. Sure. And I'm gonna go in uh, if you're if you're up for it. Little hormones. Okay. We'll okay. throw that in. We've kind of touched on it a little bit. We talked about yeah. cortisol. Right. I mean, I would consider the that kind of like sympathetic parasympathetic balance, kind of the interface between the nervous system and the hormonal system. Mm -hmm. A lot of the symptoms people feel that might they may even you know attribute to hormones are related to that kind of over sympathetic, you know, stimulation. Uh, blood flow, for example, blood flow can be regulated by hormones. Um, that dysautonomia, that's the term that researchers are using that after a brain injury, the, the changes in blood flow are often regulated by your nervous system. If you are sitting on a couch and you get up quickly and you feel like you're going to pass out, that is an autonomic nervous system issue. Mm -hmm. And so that autonomic nervous system is the first place I start. Mm -hmm. So my focus with TBI patients is addressing their neuro, immuno, uh, endocrinological, um, endocrine and metabolic kind of uh, dysfunctions and all those are tied together mm -hmm. and endocrine is tied to all those things. So first thing you have to do is get yourself out of fight and flight. That is the first place to start and that usually people will feel more calm, they're gonna sleep better, they're not gonna get the kind of blood flow changes, dizziness, that'll, a lot of that improve. Doing some of the exercises we talked about mm -hmm. are really helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the, so I have like a whole vagus nerve rehab handout. And these are just practical things like making sure that we're doing some meditation, trying to start with five minutes a day. There's tools like the Muse mm. and other kind of like biofeedback devices that right. you can use to, yeah. if you feel like meditation is the hardest thing in the world, I'd rather, yeah. you know, listen to, you know, nails on a chalkboard <laughs> than do meditation. There are tools that help us to do that. Yeah. 
Uh, so we start with that. I'm, I'm using an app right now called uh, Waking Up with Sam Harris. It's really good if anyone wants to check that one out. Um, cool, never tried that one. Yeah, it's, it's great. Honestly, I've tried like a whole bunch of other ones and this is the only one I've ever been able to get into. Um, cool. But yeah, I've been making it part of my... There's my a pro daily, tip. My daily practice, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, and I mean, obviously, like I don't get anything from that, but I I found it helpful myself. So, but yoga, tai chi would would do all that. There's research papers showing, you know, uh, something like tai chi, yoga, mindfulness all increase parasympathetic and decrease sympathetic. Mm -hmm. So that's a good place for us to start. Uh, and then I really focus on sleep. Number one, after yes, that. yes. I always share like a patient that we see and typically we see the hardest of the hard because mm. <clears throat> they've usually seen multiple practitioners and mm -hmm. I always say at what point in your dysfunction cycle are we going to break or where are we going to break the cycle and sleep and inflammation are the first piece that we mm -hmm. have to look at so autonomic nervous system um, melatonin has research on it for improving the ability to get to sleep but it also has powerful neuroantioxidant properties so it kind of has this this dual threat uh, it has good immune balancing properties. Melatonin is not just for sleep. Mm -hmm. I want to say that to everybody. Melatonin is not just for sleep. We think about it as for sleep. Yeah. There's research in animal models on melatonin as an antioxidant, as kind of like promoting brain recovery. That helps people kind of get to sleep a little bit better. So I kind of have a very specific dosing strategy on that. Um, and it's personalized. Mm -hmm. So if anybody asks about the dosing, we kind of like figure yeah, it out. We start low question and I go get. up. Yeah. I always get the question on that and I never know what to say. Um, <coughs> the, um, I mean, that, that's that's kind of my approach too. Like the way that you suggest, like you look at it and you say, okay, what's the, what's the starting point that I can, you know, mm -hmm. I always say, what's the thread? You know, what's the thread I can pull it's on to, way, start, play, to yeah. start unraveling this whole thing, right? And oftentimes it's sleep for me too. Yeah. Because when they're not sleeping well, they're waking up in the morning feeling like you just have that feeling like if you've ever had a night where you just couldn't sleep, you wake up the next day and your head just feels like thick and your eyes feel weird and groggy and you feel that fogginess and you're just not really with it the whole next day. These are the same symptoms that concussion patients are experiencing, right? And then when you ask them, like I had a patient yesterday, she was 13 years old and I asked her about sleep. She's like, she doesn't think she's been sleeping at all since her concussion 13 days ago. So it's like she's literally been going through sleepless nights, tossing and turning. I'm sure she's been sleeping in some way, but it's definitely not been full nights of sleep. She's been going. So like that's what we need to focus on. Like we need to get that figured out before anything because then no matter what. Exactly. No matter what. And I'm to not going to help To tie it full circle back to neuroinflammation, which is what we started talking about, you've heard of the glymphatic system. Mm -hmm. This is actually mm -hmm. a new – development in the scientific literature when we went to school we didn't know about the lymphatic system mm -hmm. but basically it's the um, it's the immune system's pathway the lymphatic pathway that now the brain has a very specific lymph system we didn't know that so there's channels why is the lymph important when it comes to inflammation well it's the highway that immune cells get out of the brain think of it this way Researchers were very excited about the glymphatic system because they know that the immune system, all that debris that we talked about, those immune cells that go in and just, yeah, the macrophages which eat up all the, the broken cellular mm -hmm. machinery, mm -hmm. uh, all the inflammatory cytokines that are have to, having to be resolved, they all that those immune cells leave the area of damage through the lymphatic system. Mm -hmm. So if you're not sleeping, which is the main time the lymphatic system, the glymphatic system is working, mm -hmm. your inflammation is basically the plug is not, is still mm -hmm. in the bathtub. Mm -hmm. You can't resolve and remove that inflammation. Mm -hmm. So that's why so sleep is so important to the inflammatory pathway mm -hmm. because 
the lymphatics are the last step in the resolution path. And so priority number one, and strategy to reduce inflammation, to reduce neuroinflammation is to get you to sleep. <laughs> so I would say sleep is, is, is a key, absolute key therapy that we have to, that we have to consider. Now for people that can't sleep, what are some strategies aside from melatonin that yeah. you might suggest? Because there's a lot of people that try melatonin, it doesn't work, uh, and there's a lot of people that just can't can't get to sleep no yeah. matter what. You know what I mean? Like, what kind of strategies do you provide? Them? <clears throat> Sleep's a hard one, uh, yeah. and I I feel like the more I've seen my patients over the years, the more I kind of refine my my process, mm -hmm. which I think really centers around. First, we're going to use melatonin very strategically. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, we're going to use nutrients, botanicals, amino acids. Like for example, L-theanine, one of my mm -hmm. favorites, is found in green tea. I'm drinking green tea right now. And that amino acid has a very calming effect on our NMDA receptor. Mm -hmm. For those of you that don't know, that's the main excitatory mm -hmm. neuroreceptor. Mm -hmm. Glutamate, which is our main kind of excitatory amino acid after brain injury, glutamate lights up. Mm -hmm. NMDA receptor and glutamate are the, the two kind of lock and key. Yeah, yeah. Phenine relaxes and calms that 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 basically that that relationship and decreases that stimulation. Mm -hmm. So phenine has been studied to increase sleep latency, improve ability to get sleep. It's been studied in, in kids as well as adults. It's very safe. So mm -hmm. I'll use something like that in over top of something like melatonin. Uh, and then there's other botanicals. Herbs have been used for thousands of years for mm -hmm. sleep. So there's a number of them that I find really, really effective. Uh, passionflower and lemon balm are two of my favorites. Uh, so I'll use those in various combinations and they kind of help kind of regulate some of the inhibitory neurotransmitters like the GABA pathways and just gently calm them down rather than sleeping pills are incredibly strong agonists mm, yeah, at yeah, those yeah. levels. And yeah. those are often too potent, too direct, and too specific. And I find the side effects that come with it usually is, no. it's like there are a lot of the same yeah, stuff that people are dealing with with their concussion and then it becomes this difficult task in separating what's because of the medication, what's because of the concussion injury. But it usually leaves them with this groggy hangover the next day too where they're, know. you know, they might have slept that night but they're they have that hang over the next day where they still kind of feel like shit. Um, and so I think that's that's something to – I always try to say, let's try something different. And docs are avoiding them. In my experience yeah. lately, family doctors have been like, I don't want to put you on sleeping pills because yeah, yeah. they're all really scared yeah. of the long-term side yeah. effects. They're, they're addictive too. Like they're, they're highly addictive. A lot of people can't And there could be them. some – there's some kind of like alt-dementia connections possibly mm -hmm. coming out mm -hmm. in the literature. Well, there's like – there's suicidal things too. Like there's – like it has that yeah. propensity to increase the risk. So we try to avoid those and, yeah. and we work with a family doctor to wean off those. Typically, people are very quick to get off them because they don't want to be on them. Mm -hmm. um, so those are a couple of the natural strategies. What about, um, sorry, there's a question. What about L-theanine pills supplements? Does it have to be continued? Uh, usually, I'll use supplements because you need a, a higher dose, about two, 200 milligrams to get the therapeutic effect. You can definitely do the tea, but you're not going to get a therapeutic effect of that because oh, okay. it's such, such a small amount of it. And there's also a bit of caffeine in green tea, okay. which has the yeah, counterbalancing yeah, yeah, effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But that's a, that's a great question. Um, and then, you know, some of the basic exercises like getting in a good sleep hygiene, like mm -hmm. something as simple as 
don't use screens mm -hmm. after dark. Yeah, I'm bad for that. The blue. Oh, yeah. I, we're yeah. you know we're researchers. Yeah. We're I'm doing patient files late yeah, at night. Yeah, like yeah, it's. Yeah. But when I do, I got the yellow blue blocking glasses oh, do you, on. Do you, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. And some people that are sensitive to it, I've had a number of cases. People have come back being like, those have made a huge difference. Really? They've made a big difference. And that blue light basically blocks your own melatonin to be produced. Right. That's what. That's right. the that's whole theory the whole behind thing. it. Yeah. And there's research coming out on using yellow and now red glasses at blocking green and blue light. And there's some for migraines, headaches. Mm -hmm. So some people, again, I haven't... You know, I'm not necessarily a full proponent of that, but I think it, it's worth a try for a very low cost mm -hmm. point to mm -hmm. see if that if the blue light could be stimulating mm -hmm. some extra. Just on that on that thought, this kind of just occurred to me. But one of the biggest challenges that we have with patients that have like ongoing light and noise sensitivity, we don't really have any good treatments for that. Yeah, I know. In my mind, it's it's um, well, I mean, what they've what they found is that there's some hyperexcitability of the thalamus, which is sensory organ within the brain, uh, and they think that might be one of the triggers for somebody that has persistent, you know, light and noise sensitivity. One of the other things uh, that has been found is people that that tend to wear sunglasses in the early stages of their concussion yeah. recovery tend to have more prolonged light sensitivity. Yes. And in my mind, it's like they've almost desensitized themselves or sensitized themselves, oversensitized themselves by wearing, you know, glasses. It's like, like a dark that. room that walks with you. It's a dark room. Hey, there you go. There you go. So then when they try to remove that and they try to get back into regular life, that's difficult. Now, there's also patients that will just report ongoing light and noise sensitivity. They didn't wear sunglasses. They've been exposing because that's usually the treatment that I give them. I say, you just have to expose yourself into those right. things and get used to that like normal ambient sound and light. Do you think that this could be a reflection of increased activation of the fight or flight, like ongoing sympathetic, mm -hmm. parasympathetic imbalance where that stimulation is just there, that hyperexcitability? Yeah. And do you think we could have an effect maybe on light? I know this is all theoretical. It's just getting your opinion on it. Yeah. This like, is... like a, a, could we have an effect on that by – by you know deactivating sympathetic nervous system could that be maybe a trigger or something we can need we should even look at that just like research with our own patients is try to deactivate that as you said you know we're we're the research isn't exactly clear on that i mm. think we can kind of piece together what we do know is that yeah, when you are overstimulated from a sympathetic nervous system all those senses are heightened right so it's almost like as if you are trapped in this heightened state of yeah. sensories um you know sensation uh, so I would say that's the first place I usually go with my patients is that we usually help calm the nervous system and that calms that part of the nervous system right, too. Right. So a lot of the things I talked about can be quite helpful. The other thing is, is that we have to think about exposure to light in the context of the, and sleep in context of the whole circadian rhythm. So for example, a lot of people are very fixated on, I can't to sleep. And they're just like obsessed with the yes, night. Yes, yes. But they forget that your whole circadian pathway starts the whole time mm -hmm. during the day. And a lot of people don't have enough natural light exposure during the day. So one of the things I talk about in my sleep hygiene handout is every day you need to go out and get some natural light between the hours of 10 and 1. Mm. And the reason is, is that 10 and 1 is usually when we go to bed 10 to 1 at night. Mm -hmm. So getting natural light exposure optimizes melatonin production later at that time. Really? So it's almost like an analogous type of thing. At least this is the way that I've like yeah. talked to other patients. I don't know if the research says yeah, that. Yeah. But there's enough evidence to show that if you're not getting natural light during the day, mm. you're not going to secrete enough melatonin at night. That mm. is something we can say that is, 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 is known. So think of sleep not just in 
what do I do right before I go to bed? Yes. What do I do at night? But also, what am I doing throughout the whole day? Right. Caffeine has a 12-hour half-life, mm -hmm. meaning it gets broken down 50% yeah. of the way after 12 hours. Yeah. That means anytime you drink anything mm -hmm. after 12, it's still going to be in your system. Yeah. I stopped drinking. Like you told me this uh, a few weeks ago when we were talking. I, I've stopped now drinking coffee uh, before before noon. So I just exactly. I do my couple cups in the morning and that's it. I don't do it. I don't do it in the afternoon. Um, yeah. So – yeah, it la it lasts it lasts in the body. So s simple things like that, without going through every single detail, there are things that you can do. Active steps to decrease that over stimulation of the brain and get to a, a more restful state at night. And we need to use sometimes natural and lifestyle tools to create the environment, mm -hmm. at least temporarily, mm -hmm. to allow us to get into that restful state. But sleep is 100% one of the biggest priorities yeah. that we do. Yeah, I agree. Um, I want to get back to just hormones real quick. I, we're, yeah. we're getting short on time, but um, and we lost our we lost our person there. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> so we don't know if any questions are coming in. Sorry, guys, because uh, we'll get to them in the post uh, later. Yeah, our baby woke up, so Pam's gone to <laughs> deal with that issue. Um, but just getting back to the hormone things now. Now, is that something that you test for? Like, do you run blood panels on people to test for those hormones, or do you just do you just use this as a clinical thing and say, you know what, their cortisol is probably off the charts or whatever? Or do you actually say, okay, let's let's test, let's get a hormone panel or is it different for everybody? Yeah. How do you, how do you go about doing it? I, probably to do justice to this, we'll, we'll have to come back in another episode yeah, because, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. there's so many cool nuances I'd love to share with you guys. Yeah. But in general, I would say we test and yeah. you need to test in blood mm -hmm. and you I also test in urine hormones. Really? There's different types of, of, of endpoints you get in either one. So blood testing is very like snapshot, like a picture, like what's happening at this moment. And if I come at you with a needle, your, your cortisol is going right. to go up, your hormones right, are going right, to change. Right, yeah. You also should be testing your hormones, whether it's estrogen, progesterone, which can all be affected after a brain injury at kind of the 20th, 22nd day of the cycle for females and any time for guys. But oftentimes that's not, um, that's not something that is being tested. Um, so we need to standardize that testing. You can actually test based on kind of the metabolites, meaning like after epinephrine's broken down in the body, there are certain metabolites being secreted in the urine. Right. So we can indirectly see what your sympathetic mm. kind of drive is happening. You can also do things like um, heart rate variability. Yeah. Often that's a very common thing to test and you can we can see, are you in parasympathetic mode? Are you in sympathetic mode? Mm -hmm. And then the patient can see how that changes. Right. So we, we do a number of different testing endpoints to really give us a good, a good idea. But after years, you can kind of start, kind of start seeing patterns. Mm -hmm. So for example, I'll give you one that I see a lot with concussion patients. I'm tired throughout the whole day, they'll report. And then coming around nine or 10, they'll get a second wind mm -hmm. at night. So they're like, oh, great. I'll do all my laundry and then I can't sleep. Mm -hmm. Cortisol is your energetic hormone. So mm -hmm. if you're getting energized late at night, that means that your cortisol pattern, which should be happening in the morning, is actually happening while you're sleeping. Mm -hmm. If you wake up at two or three, chances are that's cortisol and you're like lying there being like, I don't know what, like, yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. why I'm up. <laughs> that's cortisol being spiked when it should be spiking at eight. Mm -hmm. So after... Eight, chronic eight stress. At night. Sorry, eight in the morning. Eight in the morning. Yeah. So cortisol spikes eight in the morning and is nice and high and then kind of like changes and slowly goes down until being nice and low at night. Mm. And then throughout the night it's low because you don't want to be energized. You yeah. want to be resting and relaxing. Yeah. And then the cycle starts over again. Yeah. So many times at like, you know, 
peaks late at night think of every student yeah every you know parent every you know we both have young yeah. kids late at night is where you're like okay i gotta get some stuff done that's where you want to resist that urge and get a good sleep hygiene in place and start that sleep hygiene well before right before i want to go to bed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we do a lot of testing and uh next time we'll talk about just the impact of hormones on brain injuries we'll talk we can talk about deficiencies you know, there's there's a ton of information that that I think would be rele mm -hmm. really relevant to both of our. Uh, yeah, I find this topic very very interesting. So I think we should do a, probably a whole. We'll do a whole on it. Yeah. Always good to have you, buddy. All right, man. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for so having me. That for, was uh, great info. In. I appreciate you sharing. And uh, yeah, well, uh, I know I think you just want to say a couple announcements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah before you go, so you know, I, I I know that you have been looking at switching to virtual care, yeah. uh, and that's something that you are planning to do in January 2020, at least within the CCMI network. I don't know if you're just the CCMI. We're gonna we're gonna open it up, but you, there there's consoles uh, requests coming from all around the world, and so I just have to make a yeah, make a yeah. shift. So that's you. starting. That's gonna start in the new year. So reach out to us, and we'll we'll hook you up, and we'll definitely get. Uh, uh, we'll definitely get you guys hooked up with, with that. And then also course. Of course. So Dr. Herkel has finally agreed after me begging him forever to put together a course for healthcare professionals specifically on nutrition. So it's going to be advanced nutrition for healthcare professionals directly related to concussion. Yep. Um, and so I'm holding him to this, but it's going to be February of 2020. Right. So if it's not done by February 2020, everyone write to Dr. Paul Herkel <laughs> and give him shit because I've been on him forever to do this. So yeah. he's got three kids though, so I've been trying to push him as hard as I can. And also, I just thinking about this now and based on you know where we're at on the weekend is is we need to put together a course for patients, right? We'll like what? That, yeah. yeah, like what can you guys do? Because I know there's probably a lot of patients watching this right now and can't find the care that you want and can't get access to a doctor Herkel or even a concussion well, doc. But you, being able to um, give like the tools and the framework, I think we should set up like a like a workshop module thing for patients mm -hmm. specifically to optimize sleep, to optimize diet, to optimize their recovery, to just educate yeah. and provide all this information to them so that they can start kind of the foundation groundwork. The stuff that we to, talk about to every single right, patient. Right, yeah, exactly. Over. What's yeah, the for sure. what's the what's the education we provide to every patient and the stuff that we're always trying to set that foundation for. So you and I need to really kind of yeah. set that up. That's in the plan for 2020. Yeah, yeah, I think we, we we've talked about it. It's time for us to do yeah. it because there's so many people like our time's limited. I'm sure it's hard to find people that are, you know, TBI literate, which is kind of what I've been calling yeah, yeah, things now. Yeah. Uh, but there are things that you can do in your own home that you can get better. And our mission is to get as many people the best quality kind of recovery process that they can have and a lot of things they can do themselves. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Kim is uh, seeing his daughter. <laughs> she's Super eat, excited. She's eating Cheerios after her. Yeah. Maybe just repeat your name and the spelling and where that people can find you because people are asking... Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, you can find me. I just in the process of switching my websites. So either Dr. Paul Herkel, so D R P A U L H R K A L dot com or P A U L H R K L N D uh, dot com as well. Um, both those are my website um, through CCMI. We'll we'll throw something up on the CCMI so they can find us uh, through that. Yeah, you've written a couple blogs on there too that I think have your contact information. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and at, at Dr. Paul Herkel on 
Instagram, right? Yeah. Or then reach out to me on Instagram. And that's the way that my team has been setting me up with a lot of consults that way. Yeah. Um, so I'm practicing in Mississauga and, and Maple and we're doing some virtual stuff now, especially if you're part of the CCMI network or if you're not, you know, yeah. we can do, we can do both, but I really want to reach out to the practitioners and the patients of the CCMI network because you're already getting the best quality care out there. We got to add the metabolic, um, mm -hmm. endocrine mm -hmm. piece too. Mm -hmm. Right on. Cool. Awesome. Thanks again. All right. Dude. Thanks guys. I appreciate it. Whoa, wait, 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 wait. Just one more thing before you go. This episode is brought to you by the Complete Concussion Management Clinical Network. Are you suffering from concussion symptoms that just aren't getting better? Maybe you're in the wrong place. Maybe you're seeing the wrong healthcare professional. Visit completeconcussion.com slash find dash a dash clinic to find all the local professionally trained concussion rehab individuals in your area. Each of our partnered clinics have gone through extensive training on concussion assessment, management, diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation. Uh, they're gonna work with you to try and find the root cause of your symptoms and then develop a treatment plan and approach to help get rid of them. If you don't know what's driving the symptoms, you can't ever help or hope to fix them. Completeconcussions.com slash find a clinic. They have a 98% patient satisfaction rating and have a higher net promoter score than Amazon, Apple, and Netflix. Completeconcussions.com slash find a clinic. You will not regret it. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.